We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the spooky world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I'm a sick man. Well, that was my outro already gone. That's the <laughs> record timing there. Congratulations, Cam. <laughs> I was hoping you'd introduce yourself as Igor the Provocateur. We'll talk about Igor later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I think before we talk about the film in question, we have a very special guest to introduce. Joining us on the show this week, it is the host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. It is Beth Akamundo. Hello, Beth. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Uh, Let's just say my feet are gold and I'm ready to go. All right. (laughs) Well, I think uh, before we get into the film, uh, let's talk about you a little bit. So I, I actually first stumbled upon you and your podcast online because I was looking at sort of No Time to Die podcasts online and you did coverage of that when the film came mm-hmm. out. And I spotted that friends of the show, Jeff Quest and Gary Dexter, <laughs> were just hanging around on your podcast. And I was like, well, hang on now. you got my mates <laughs> on there. So uh, I thought I gave you a call. And then I looked on your Twitter and you were talking about this week's film, lo and behold. So it was just serendipitous. Yes, it is. Yeah, I grew up, I was born in 1960. So I was like the prime age for the Bond films. Mm -hmm. And my dad introduced me to the movies. And I do remember that I played the Goldfinger soundtrack so many times that my parents hid it. (laughs) And wouldn't let me play it anymore. So uh, yeah, I've been a a big fan of the, the spy genre for a long time. So, of course, you then grabbed the uh, Tom Jones Thunderball uh, soundtrack and just punished them with that instead. Yes. Well, you know, they they tried to keep me from doing a lot of things, but because I was obsessive about stuff, you know, it wasn't like I just liked things. I tended to get, you know, I collected all the Bond trading cards and then I, you know, everything. Like I wanted the posters. I wanted the soundtracks. I wanted to see the movies repeatedly. I think I drove my parents crazy, but... We all did as kids. That, that's entirely fair. And I want to get back. Job. Like, that's, that's what we're, we're all there for, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I'll get back to your spy credentials in a minute. I just want to ask a little bit more about about yourself. Now, obviously, you sure. have a, a, a love of spy films, but obviously, you, you host this podcast as well. So, you know, what is it you sort of do? What brought you to bringing to do podcasts? Really, I think everything related to films is my father's fault. Uh, Mm. He got me hooked on movies from a very young age. And one thing that made a huge impact on me is one day he told me I could stay home from school so that I could watch On the Waterfront because he thought it was an important film. And this is pre, you know, DVD and VHS. So the only way you could see a film was in the theater or, you know, when it was on TV. 
And he said, that's an important film and I think you should see it and you can skip school tomorrow. Wow. <laughs> and somehow in my little brain, I felt like, oh, films must be an important thing if you can like miss school for them. But he had a real love of movies. Uh, he told me stories about sneaking into movie theaters in New York and he loved all the old like Marx Brother films and Errol Flynn. And so he took me to movies all the time and I just got hooked on them. And because, you know, he took me to all the films he loved. I had it, I had a love for a lot of films that most little girls my age probably didn't. And I do remember him uh, buying me a model kit for King Kong and the creature from the Black Lagoon and pretending that he was buying it for his son because the person at the counter felt it was inappropriate for a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> and I also asked for a for red paint because I wanted to make sure I could paint the blood. Yes. On the on the, you know, model kits. So, yeah. But yeah, so I fell in love with movies and uh, all kinds. Uh, not, you know, I, I'm not very picky about the genres. I like just about everything. Probably I lean towards horror and um, film noir and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff the most. But um, I just love movies. They're just, you know, you go in a darkened theater with a bunch of strangers and you watch this thing on screen glowing and uh, you get to enjoy going to like wildly different places and meeting crazy characters you might not ever want to meet in your real life and it's fabulous <laughs> you have a, a much nicer view of uh, theaters than i do currently I, whenever <laughs> i go to theaters i feel like i'm just constantly distracted by people chewing on popcorn i just i want to yeah. throw things at them but hey ho, i i do i have to admit going to the cinema is a far better experience than watching it on your couch at home by yourself yeah. I always remember so the, I always remember there was this documentary on cinematographers and the cinematographer who shot Rosemary's Baby tells the story where Roman Polanski told him to shoot um Ruth Gordon answering the phone by shooting down this hallway and he said, "Oh, but she's out of frame. Shouldn't we get her like in the frame?" And he says, "No, no, no, trust me." And so when they screen the film and that scene came up and she goes in the room and she answers the phone and all you see is like a slim part of her arm or something. The entire audience leaned to one side to like peer around the doorway. And the cinematographer goes like, ah, I see. And that's something you feel like in a movie theater with other people. It's the same thing with horror films. You know, it's like, no, 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 don't go in that room. <laughs> or even how people are feeling uh, right now with Top Gun Maverick as well. <laughs> yeah. So. Are you saying people are leaning in the cinema during yeah. the jet sequences of Top Gun? Oh, they're going left and right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I suppose then let, let's go back to the spy of it all. Now, you, you mentioned an early love for James Bond, mm -hmm. but I, I've been looking up some of your previous podcast episodes and you've mentioned some other films other than James Bond and the spy world, as we like to say, is much bigger than James Bond. Yes. So what are some it of is. your favorite spy movies? Uh, well, I also love, again, going back to like when I was a kid and the things that like really hooked my imagination. I also love the James Coburn in like Flint movies. I thought those were fabulous. And of course, a huge fan of the Avengers TV show. I mean, Emma Peel was, you know, the between Emma Peel and Pussy Galore, which most people today would probably think are not good role models for little girls. But, you know, uh, that's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be somebody who could 
kick ass and wear like really crazy costumes and be smart and not afraid and anyway so uh those uh in particular i also like you know as i got older i i also got interested in the more serious spy films so you know films like um the spy who came in from the cold uh was something that interested me in you know some of the uh john le carré adaptations also uh, but that came a little later when I could understand some of those more complicated ideas and not just the, the more fun adventure stuff. Yeah, I, I think uh, Derek Flint talking to a dolphin is, is far easier to understand <laughs> as a kid than, um, you know, little drummer girl. Well, plus, you know, I grew more cynical as I got older. So, right. you know, you start to lean towards the stuff that reflects that sort of point of view as well like yeah it's all dark it's all terrible everybody's corrupt they're all bad nobody's gonna save us but <laughs> yeah not a lot of kids are like i'm in the mood for the parallax view yeah oh that's a good one too yeah, yeah. and winter kills oh haven't seen that one. Oh, that's a similar style it's that cinema of paranoia kind of thing from the from that era so but it's uh, Jeff Bridges and John Huston. Uh, Anthony Perkins, I believe, is the one who runs like some weird master computer that oversees things. But th you are selling me on this one very well. It's so I, good. You have me it's... at master computer. I love that stuff. Yeah. Billion dollar brain. I'm all about it. Sold. It, yeah. Give this is the more paranoid kind of aspect to it. And, and Elizabeth Taylor has a wordless cameo. Interesting. But you can tell what she's saying. Is that, is that like Sophia Loren in uh, Operation Crossbow? She just sort of turns up for five minutes and then leaves again. We'll, we'll have to find a out little, in the show. A little like that, yes. Mm. But yeah, that's a great one, and it's underappreciated, I feel like. I feel like it doesn't get shown or seen that often. Well, I, I, it sounds like your spy credentials check out. And speaking of <laughs> underappreciated films, <laughs> Cam, what are we talking about this week? We are talking about uh, 1965's Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine, the first in a two-part series. <laughs> this is the originator right here, people. I, I'm still shocked you didn't sing that intro there, Cam. What a shame. Feel free to go nuts, Scott. I, maybe, after I've had a few drinks. But <laughs> um, I, So I, when we were looking at having someone on to talk about this film, I needed someone who'd seen the film and enjoyed it because I was worried reading about it that I wouldn't enjoy it. I won't get into how I feel about it now, but I had no experience apart from like seeing a trailer when we were putting this list of films together and deciding to we finally get around to reviewing it. So, Beth, I'll put the question to you. What is your first experience with Dr. Goldfoot? Well, I can't say I remember distinctly the first time I saw it because I, I did grow up in the 60s. And so those beach blanket bingo movies were mm -hmm. something that I distinctly remember watching. And so I'm pretty sure I saw it like in that run of films in the 60s. But I don't have a clear memory of that. But what I do remember is the more recent one I saw, which is during the pandemic, uh, friends of mine decided we were going to do these group screenings on Zoom and we were all coming up with film titles that, hey, what might be a fun, like wacky thing to watch? Something that doesn't really require a lot of attention because we're we were streaming it like through our Zoom for people who didn't have the movies and it could be pretty bad. And then uh, another friend of mine, James Patrick, who um, is also a, a Bond and a spy fanatic, 
uh, gave me a list of what he called 10 escapist films, uh, spy films to, to watch during the pandemic. And so this film came up and I said, let's watch this on our Zoom. And so half the people in the Zoom group were like, yeah, this is fun. And then the other half were like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and I think left a few of them, I think, bailed. They couldn't handle it anymore. So it completely divided our group. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, how can you resist Vincent Price as some sort of mad villain, you know, with possibly gold feet, but definitely gold genie shoes? I was going to do the whole intro in a Vincent Price-esque voice, but I thought uh, that would be, <laughs> uh, be a shame to the man's legacy if I did. That's right. But it really it really is like beach blanket bingo goes spying. I mean, that is really... <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because I never really saw any of these beach movies. I, I think maybe it, I, I, it, it might be just the fact that I wasn't watching films in the 60s because I wasn't here, but also <laughs> the fact that it, they seem very American. Yes, yes that is correct. Uh, or at least North American, perhaps. Um, not particularly British. And very coastal. Like it's very, I, th I would say it's even very like California, much more than anything else. And if it was, if it had appeal across the nation, it was because it was presenting this view of like teen life mm. on the West Coast that was really attractive as something that all those kids in the Midwest couldn't experience. Like it's very Archie comics, what they're selling. Yeah. Where it's like kids just want to like smooch and hang out on the beach, like that kind of thing. Yep. Well, yeah. that I can understand. I, it's interesting <laughs> as well because I, when I was watching this, I, I was, I thought of a film that's very British that I think probably hasn't gone over to North America, which is the Carry On mm -hmm. uh, films, and there's Carry On Spying, which is a sort of an offshoot for one film only, where they do a spy caper, but really. Most of the films is just about capers in some way, shape, or form. And it's just about hanging out with these funny characters. So maybe that's just the British equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a little older skewing, though, is my guess, from what I've seen of the... Yeah, perhaps. I, the carry-ons were like the 50s into the 60s, I think. Although, don't at me if I'm wrong, folks. But I also, I mean, on the age of the characters, too. Oh, like, sure. It seemed, to it, yeah, yeah, it yeah. seemed like that appealed more to like a slightly older crowd. Whereas the beach blanket movies, I mean, that's like American international stuff. And it was totally aimed at like how many teenagers can we get into the theater? <laughs> and it's also like this is right at that early period where they're actually recognizing teenagers as something they can make money from. Yeah. And so it's like, how do we engineer entertainment <laughs> that is going to draw teenagers to drive-ins? And that's what American International Pictures made. And I, I've seen all the beach party movies and... For no, like I didn't even realize that Dr. Goldfoot was connected to them until I sat down last night to both watch the movie and do the research on it. And um, yeah, about, I don't know, three, four years ago, I just went on this streak where I burned through all the beach party movies in the span of about a month or something. And they are, I think in many ways, it's like 40 years from now, people will look back at what teenagers are watching now and be like, what were those kids watching? And that's kind of what the beach party movies are, where they feel really... They are just like scattershot comedies where they're just really crazy and silly and they just are propelled by their energy, not by logic whatsoever. And I think like, you know, you mentioned Carry On as maybe like an older person's equivalent of what they were. I also think of like the Clint Eastwood orangutan movies in the 70s where it's just kind of like... <laughs> 
this shoestring setup where it's like people just come hang out with, uh, you know, actors you like and watch silly things happen for 90 minutes to two hours. Yeah, it's like the Brat Pack kind of, you know, mentality. Yeah. It's the Rat Pack for teenagers from the 60s. I, I read that those beach party films were for like drive-ins. And the whole point is, was you're meant to be kind of be making out with someone and not really paying attention for most of the films. You kind of watch it, you go, oh, he fell over. Anyway, get back to this bit, um, which I completely understand because I think this translates a lot to this film. But I didn't ask you, Cam, you know, did you have any previous connection to Dr. Goldfoot? No, none whatsoever. Didn't even really know what it was um, when we added it to the list. And so it was really last night was uh, suddenly like, oh, my God, I actually have some background in where this film came from. Except for the bikini that you're wearing now, of course. That, well, obviously. I've been wearing the gold bikini since we started this podcast. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's probably going to chafe after a while. But um, for those who haven't seen Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. Super sex bots built to kill. In this campy spy spoof, Dr. Goldfoot, Vincent Price, has invented an army of bikini-clad robots who are programmed to seek out wealthy men and charm them into signing over their assets. <laughs> Secret agent Craig Gamble, Frankie Avalon, and millionaire Todd Armstrong set out to foil his fiendish plot. Yeah. That's pretty on the nose, actually. Yeah, that was a good one. Poor Todd Armstrong didn't get the uh, the actor credit in that, though. No. Only Frankie Avalon, Vincent Price, uh, famous enough to get the credits there. I feel like what you just read out was basically the script for this film. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then it just says Vincent Price, vamp. Yeah, exactly. A lot of improv. <laughs> yeah. Apparently there was a lot of... It's actually, actually, that's probably in your behind the scenes, Cam. So I'll, I'll, I won't say what I was going to say. Okay. Which throws me over to Cam. What are the behind the scenes of this film? So we've talked about American International Pictures. It was this company that made a lot of schlock B-movies, a lot of teen um, kind of comedies and, you know, the sort of thing that basically teenagers would buy drive-in tickets for. And um, producer James H. Nicholson was the co-founder of this company. And this was sort of his brainchild. At the time, um, he was, I think, dating Susan Hart, the lead in this film, as well as they would get married. I'm not quite sure when that fell in the timeline, but I think they were married by the time this movie came out. Um, and uh, he was looking to create a vehicle around her um, that would also appeal to that drive-in market. And so he doesn't have like a writing you know, background, really. He just had a few story credits on the two Goldfoots, as well as 1954's Target Earth and 1974's Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, which Classics. became one of those. Well, Crazy Larry became like one of those go-to car movies. Uh, Quentin Tarantino references it in Death Proof, for example. Um, he's actually credited in this movie as James Hartford. But he came up with this idea. Um, they knew they wanted to do kind of like the female robot thing. And so they brought in a writer, um, Robert Kaufman. He'd gotten his start in the 60s on a lot of TV, like the Bob Newhart show he'd worked on for quite a bit. He'd also, in 1965, the same year this comes out, done Ski uh, Party with Frankie Avalon. Where won't these kids party? <laughs> <laughs> Coming to a cinema near you, Graveyard Party starring Frankie Avalon. Actually, that's pretty dark. Oh, there's Pajama Party. There's a whole bunch. You got to have bikini or party in the title, I think, was uh -huh. like the necessity at that time. Yeah. 
And so, like, Kaufman, he went on to have a bit of a career. He got an Oscar nom for Divorce American Style, which he had a story credit on. Uh, Norman Lear wrote the script. And he would uh, do a lot of kind of silly stuff, like The Happy Hooker Goes to Washington and Love at First Bite, movies like that. Um, and so, originally, the movie was going to be called Dr. Goldfoot and the Sex Machine, which wasn't really going to fly probably in the 1960s as much, especially for marketing to teenagers. Um, so that kind of fell by the wayside. And I found this note, I don't know if it's accurate, but it would seem to make sense to me in that William Asher, who directed a lot of the Beach Party movies, was at some point attached to this, but it ultimately didn't end up happening. And so they brought in a director, Norman Tarog, who had started as a child actor in the early 1900s before moving into writing and directing in the 1920s. And this man has a huge filmography, about 185 credits. He won a Best Director in 1931 for the movie Skippy. But he would go on and just do a ton of Elvis movies, like a lot of them. I think he did like eight or nine Elvis movies. Um, he did um, some uncredited work on The Wizard of Oz. He directed the movie Boys Town, which got a Best Picture nomination and a Director nomination that year in 1938. And Goldfoot fell right near the end of his career. But it fell just after a movie he'd made called Sergeant Deadhead, which had starred Frankie Avalon as an astronaut who swaps brains with a chimp. I have so many questions about this film. <laughs> Are you sure that the films didn't kill him? You want me to film what? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Maybe it's like after Goldfoot, you're like, I cannot achieve any more than I have just achieved. Like, there's nothing left. <laughs> Where do you go after Goldfoot? We should just stop the show after today, I think. This is the end. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, but the Frankie Avalon swapping brains with a chimp is also like... I kind of want to see it. Yeah, I have not seen that one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was sold on Winter Kills and I'm so uh, sold on Sergeant Deadhead. So <laughs> I've got a double feature ahead of me. <laughs> I think you need some LSD before you do that one. Yeah. Or, or something. Or something. Yeah. So when Norman Tarog came on, he brought in another writer um, to revise the, the work done by Robert Kaufman. He brought in Elwood Ullman, who had started his career in the, in the uh, early 30s, and he had worked all in mostly comedy shorts. He made a ton of them, including just a massive amount of Three Stooges shorts. And this would mark the penultimate film in his career. He would make one more film after this called The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. It's all about bikinis. It is. Man. It's the 60s. I wish I was wearing one now. <laughs> An invisible one. You are. Wow. <laughs> I am. There you go. <laughs> and this draft of the screenplay lost the musical numbers, which were something they originally had intended was to have much more of a musical presence throughout um, Dr. Goldfoot. So that fell by the wayside. And um, in terms of the production, they worked in a lot of beach party cameos. Annette Funicello appears in this movie, Harvey Lembeck, Aaron Kincaid, Deborah Wally. These are all actors who were quite popular for the beach party series. And um, this movie also just has some really interesting connections, like the opening credits, which I'm sure we'll talk about, were done by Art Clokey, who was the creator of Gumby. And, you know, Gumby was like a real staple of children's TV for a certain generation and famous because of uh, Eddie Murphy playing Gumby on Saturday Night Live later down the road. Whenever I hear Gumby, I think of Monty Python, but I think that was a different Gumby. Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Right, interesting that you didn't mention, but the, uh, the dance numbers from the film did end up somewhere. Oh, that's in my postscript. Don't worry, that's coming. Okay. Um, 
I can't uh, wait. A few, a few other connections. You had the Supremes singing the theme song to this movie, as you know, you've been referencing, Scott. Very catchy. It was supposed to be a single. It was unreleased and didn't come out for like another decade until their greatest hits was uh, in stores. I, I'm not really sure why. And it was the first track on the album, obviously. Obviously, yeah. I would think in the 60s. That's how you hook them. <laughs> in the 60s, why would you not be marketing that to you know bring teenagers in? We were talking before the show started. You don't think it's that particularly strong of a track, though, Cam? But if I'm a 1960s teenager, I probably love it. And, and well, we've all figured out by now you're from at least the 1920s. So I guess it, I guess there's just not enough, uh, you know, brass in it for you or something. Me and Norman Tarog were both child stars of the early 1900s. <laughs> there we yeah. go. There we go. And um, this film also, uh, Susan Hart's hair, if it jumped out at you at all, was done by John Peters, who would go on to be a major producer. He would uh, be, a, you know, uh, paired off with um, Barbara Streisand for a while romantically, and then he would become a major producer, and um, they would make their version of A Star is Born together. John Peters would oversee some of the Batman films that Tim Burton made. Um, he's one of those Hollywood legends, and actually Bradley Cooper played him uh, just last year. In Licorice Pizza, the new Paul Thomas Anderson film. So John Peters, a definitely fascinating Hollywood figure, and this is one of his early starts. Wait, does Dr. Goldfoot feature into Licorice Pizza at any point? I wish. I wish. Me too. Yeah. I would I would watch the film. Yeah. And this movie also made use of recycled footage. It was not a huge budget movie. It was the first American international film to be over one million dollars. Its budget was one point five, but that didn't mean they need to work they didn't need to work in some uh, filler. And so you had um, scenes from The Pit and the Pendulum, the Vincent Price film, um, when they are in the dungeon here. Some of the um, establishing shots are taken from that movie, which was also an American international production. And they also used, just for one shot, um, when it shows a bunch of battleships firing on Dr. Goldfoot at the end of the film, that is footage from Godzilla vs. Mothra. So one of the other 60s classics, a movie I greatly appreciate, one of my favorites of the classic Godzilla era. There's some uh, Beth connective tissue to Godzilla here in this film. This is all coming together. I like it. Yes. See, it is. But, you know, I mean, that was American International. Man, if you didn't use a set at least three or four times, then you weren't getting your money's Mm -hmm. worth out of it. And and recycling footage is not a thing that's gone away. Even, you know, Star Trek VI and Star Trek VII recycled footage of things exploding and stuff like that. Like, it's still around. Also, um, Firefox, a lot of the sky footage wound up being used in Back to the Future 2. So, it happens. And Firefox used footage from the Iger sanction. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So It's all connected, baby. That's right. And so, as I said, the movie cost <laughs> $1.5 million. Domestically, it did $1.9 million. International, I have no idea. I, I feel like this was not a movie they really released the numbers on. But apparently, it did very well, particularly in Italy. Europe was successful, but Italy was where the uh, the market really was, and we will talk more about that probably when we tackle the sequel, which was an Italian production. Well, I did read it was released here in the UK because they had to change the title of it. Yeah, to Dr. G, because there was, I think, two Dr. Goldfoots working, and they were scared of a lawsuit. <laughs> See, I've heard two different things. I've heard that story, and I've also heard it was to do with a, a potential lawsuit from broccoli and saltzman oh. because of goldfinger i don't know like i feel like that would fall into a parody i haven't heard that one it, well I, they were very protective of the bonds you know that i mean the the loop the hoops that people had to go through just to do like casino royale 67 yeah or never never again they they're very protective of those films 
Yeah, I always wonder though, like just legally, if that would have just fell into parody, so it would have been dismissed anyway. Although I don't, I don't know in 1960s, you know, what the entertainment industry is looking at as parody versus ripoff. Well, I know that my friend made a film called Mutant on the Bounty, and Ted Turner sued him because it infringed on the classic quality of the original Mutiny on the Bounty. Weird. Needless to say, Ted Turner lost, but. But the fact that they would even sue, like, Mutant on the Bounty, it's a space parody, like, it's out in space with an alien. I don't know. It seemed very strange. I guess it's just worth uh, <laughs> skipping the headache sometimes. Maybe that's why they change it to Dr. G. I, I just wondered, like, I, I want to be in that meeting with, with Broccoli and Saltzman where they go, this Dr. Goldfoot film, <laughs> it's going to take us down. We're never going to, there'll never be a Thunderball. <laughs> Dr. Goldfoot's the one. We have to destroy it. And, and then obviously, no. I prefer to think of them just sitting in a movie theater watching it, pulling out their hair. Well, and just laughing. <laughs> Surrounded by <laughs> screaming teenagers while they look grumpy. <laughs> Everyone's making out and they're just confused. <laughs> what do these kids want? I don't know. That's right. Give them 25 minutes of underwater sequences. <laughs> Maybe they were afraid people would mistake it for a Bond film and then bring down the the respectability of its franchise. Yeah, I would double O... Uh... Uh, double, o, double O and a half. And a quarter. Yeah. <laughs> he got Is reduced. Oh, my bad. Well, he, well they get it. Rank. Oh. His uncle kind of... He gets reduced. Uh, well, I, the uncle I've got many notes on. <laughs> I want to get to him. <laughs> and so the top three for the year, number one was The Sound of Music, number two is Dr. Zhivago, and number three was Thunderball. And just lastly, Scott, you hinted at it earlier... To promote this movie, a couple weeks after it was released, um, they aired on TV a, um, a special called The Wild Weird World of Dr. Goldfoot, and it aired on November 18th, 1965, just a couple weeks after release. But this is the era where people don't rush out opening weekend the way they do now, so the movie would have had a slowly rolling out release, so it would make sense to build steam. And it aired in place of the TV show Shindig. Um, and uh, Scott, you and I both watched this um, in preparation. And it actually, on the special, has some of the musical numbers that were cut from the film. I mean, they recreate them for a black and white live presentation. But yeah, you get a, the gist of what they were. Also, you, you have like replacement characters. Susan Hart's there, but yeah. uh, Frankie Avalon's not there. And Dwayne Hickman's not there. And Eagle, played by Jack Mullaney, is not there. It's actually the, I think it's actually more of the cast from the beach movies that are in this. Well, yeah, like Lembeck plays the Igor-like character. Um, Hugo. Yeah, Hugo in the special. He has a cameo in Dr. Goldfoot, but yeah, he's there. And then um, Tommy Kirk plays, I guess, kind of the Frankie Avalon-type character in the special. And Tommy Kirk was a big, you know, he was a Disney kid, like Annette Funicello, and he was also like a teen idol of the time. Well, I, I can tell you that that special isn't making my knock list. <laughs> it was it was something it was something yeah I, I wish i'd had more drinks before i watched that last night but yeah. um well let's slip on our gold shoes and talk about goldfoot now we've teased it beth you've watched it a couple of times now so you are resident expert on oh, the no! bikini machine so congratulations you, 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 you i'll send you some uh, gold slippers in the post all right <laughs> but uh what do you think of Dr. Golfer and the Bikini Machine when you revisited it for this podcast? Well, you know, I think it really is one of those kind of artifacts from the 60s. It's one of those films where if you watch it today, 
like I said, I I watched it with some friends who were much younger than me, who didn't grow up and have any of the kind of nostalgia over those beach blanket movies. So, you know, a lot of kind of the points of reference and the things that they were making fun of were something that they were just kind of blanking over when it happened. So for me, you know, it's one of those films where it does just remind me of those times. And what was interesting about kind of American international stuff is they had these kind of uh, dueling desires. They wanted to get the young people in. So they wanted to be kind of irreverent and a little bit risque or naughty or, you know, pushing things to the edge. But then they also wanted to kind of tap into old school Hollywood with people like Vincent Price. And they did that in the Beach Blanket movies, too. You know, Buster Keaton's in one of them. Um, so they were always trying to, like, throw in as many elements as they could to kind of reach to every single audience they possibly can. So you get this, like, real, you know, jumbled mix of stuff. And so to, to me, it's mostly kind of this nostalgic fun. And, you know, the pace of it and the style of comedy definitely feel dated by our hmm. standards. Um, but, you know, the things I love about it are the opening and closing songs like you don't get opening credits and closing credits like that anymore and they're just so much fun to watch and to listen to you know i mean the end credits you've got the you know bikini clad dancing girls including some you know just you know uh decapitated heads floating around at one point too it's disturbing uh, yeah i mean like <laughs> where's that coming from but um and you know it's always and vincent price was such a game <laughs> kind of you know actor for this it's like sure let's just go with this and do it and he's really fun to watch i i, I just want to ask because i'm not very familiar with american international pictures you both are what's like a modern equivalent are we talking like asylum films where they make sharknado and stuff like that or or is there something else uh... to, for, for people who have never heard of this well i mean this thing with American International was they made movies like this, but then they would also do like um, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations like Pit and the Pendulum and The Raven. And so it's like they were kind of these, you know, fairly cheap horror films. So some of them are actually legitimately good. Like I would yeah, recommend yeah. them to people. So in that yeah. way, a little bit of like the Blumhouse model, which makes low budget horror now, and a lot of them really do blow up and some of them are really good. So I guess in terms of just like low budget horror you could see some parallels maybe there but not larger picture i mean i think what's difficult is that the landscape for making films now has changed so much mm -hmm. that it's not easy to find an equivalent because now you can i mean let's face it you can make a movie on your iphone in your home without any trouble i mean you can make it whether it's good or bad or gets released that's a whole other thing but the ability to make a film is incredibly easy now. And so there's so many places that are willing to package stuff and put it out there. And what was, I think, I don't know if I want to say unique, but what was kind of special about American International is it did have this kind of like broad breadth of films that they were making. And so they made total schlock and, uh, you know, and stuff that was ridiculous. And, but they also, you know, like so many people got their start, you know, people like Scorsese and Peter Bogdanovich and I think uh, Francis Ford Coppola made stuff with them. And later on, you know, um, Ron Howard. So like it was a real place to learn. I mean, Corman would let you come in at kind of any level and just say, like, if you're willing to do the work, 
then yeah, you can make something here. And if you come to me with an idea and you can reuse that set I have over there, then I'll let you go ahead and make that movie. So it was this interesting, you know, space where people could actually get like a film education that was sort of unique and you didn't have to come in with anything else. And so I'm not sure there's any place now that kind of reflects that aspect of it, that kind of, I mean, maybe you could say trauma. <laughs> sure. As, like that kind of do-it-yourself indie, like true do-it-yourself indie filmmaking spirit where it's like, yeah, whatever, you know, you can uh, get it done. But I think that was kind of a special little moment in time for, and, you know, American International changed as, it, you know, time went on too. But in the 60s and, and 70s, I think it was really kind of this interesting spot where, you know, Corman had some actual artistic impulses to make some stuff that was good. Uh, also stuff that would make money. I mean, I don't think he ever wanted to make anything that he thought had no box office appeal at all, but um, he definitely wanted to make good films, but he also wanted to make money and keep his company afloat. So he would make other stuff that maybe wasn't quite so good or, you know, take some foreign film and redub it or whatever. <laughs> And the thing with American International as well is they cranked out so yeah. many movies that it's like because there was just this endless stream of content coming out, it gave a lot of, you know, as Beth said, like all these filmmakers an opportunity because they're like, we need to make like 17 <laughs> movies this week. Who wants to make one? <laughs> and so it's like, you know, even like actors like Jack Nicholson show up in, you know, some of the Roger Corman films. And it's just like this breeding ground for talent. And uh it's just a really fascinating era, and I go back and watch some of these movies now. Like I can't remember if it was American International, but it was a Roger Corman movie. I watched Bucket of Blood not too long ago, and like that is a really fascinating horror movie talking about kind of beatnik culture at the time. And so, you know, we're talking about Doctor Goldfoot, which is maybe a more silly, just kind of broad comedy, but they actually made some things that are genuinely fascinating to go back and rewatch. But they all have bikini in the title. Well, one would hope, but no. Oh, oh. 50% well, of them do. Yeah, 50%. Okay. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, well, it sounds like Beth is still on the Dr. Goldfoot hype train, which I like. Good. <laughs> Cam, where do you sit? I think, so, yeah, as I said, I watched all the Beach Party movies, and I would be really interested to know, I mean, Scott, you'll be the best test for this, what my reaction would have been had I not seen any of those movies and I just sat down to watch Dr. Goldfoot. Because like, just wait. <laughs> when I sat down last night, I'm like, oh, I know this tone, I know this vibe. This all feels like the sort of thing I've seen in you know the beach parties, ski party as well. Same kind of energy. And so I was like on board for it for 90 minutes. Like I enjoyed it. As is so often the case with beach party movies, 90 minutes feels long. Like there's a point by the time you get to the end, you're like. We could have wrapped this up in about 75, I think. Uh, it feels often like uh, characters are just kind of running around for the sake of running around. And there's a lot of chase scenes in these movies. The way that, like, if you go back and watch classic Disney live-action movies, they will always find a way to wedge in, like, a 12-minute chase scene. Well, that's the case here as well. And that's where my patience begins to wear a little thin. But I would say, like... I sat through it with sort of like bemused, almost indifference, but like an enjoyable indifference where I'm like, this is really silly. I'm finding a lot of elements that are a lot of fun to watch. I love the kind of colorful energy of the movie, but 
you know, it is exactly what it is. And I'm sure that, you know, teenagers in the 1960s would have really enjoyed it in a drive-in. Is it something that you can sit down in 2022, throw on and be like, what a riveting night, you know, watching movies? Probably not. <laughs> so speaking of my thoughts on the film. Yeah. <laughs> a great pivot there, Cam. Well done. I um, haven't seen any of these beach films, but I've seen a lot of spy films and a lot of 60s spy films. So I had no idea what I was getting, but boy, did I not expect any of this. <laughs> I, 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 I watched it twice, as I usually do. My first viewing, I was perplexed at the best of times. Now, don't get me wrong, Vincent Price is a star he is the best thing about this film hands down and that's why the film is named after his character we understand this this is fine but everything else around him i just feel like it's as wonky as the sets that they're acting on <laughs> the cardboard computers <laughs> yeah bleep, bleep. it's like being on the set of the original star trek it's like just you know gummy bears for buttons yeah. um <laughs> i just like i was waiting for like a laugh i was just sitting there going ah, okay Oh, yeah, they're chasing each other again. Oh, San Francisco for 10 minutes in the car, and then a buggy, and then a bike. Okay, this... Okay. Oh, it's over. Okay. What did I just watch? Like, I, I had no sense of a plot or a story <laughs> or anything particularly. Like, I, I, there is a story, like, trying to get the money off of these people. That That's kind of there, but everything I look for in a film wasn't really there, except for some <laughs> fun performances. But even then, it's... It feels like uh, Vincent Price is sort of well, vamping. Like It feels like there's a lot of ad-libs in this film. And then I watched it again. Oh, yeah. I took two days in between my viewings. <laughs> to recover? <laughs> yeah, I needed it. I needed it. Watched like the wild world of, of uh, Dr. Goldfoot. That's even worse. Yeah, that, that's, that's a bit of a sit to get through. That's, that's rough. And that's 30 minutes. And you're, you're checking your clock after five. But um, yeah. I went into the second viewing with no expectations whatsoever. I didn't really enjoy it the first time around. And I've got to say, the second time around, I didn't hate it as much. Because it was just kind of like, oh, we're just hanging out. And I was like checking my phone and I looked back and nothing's really happened. Um, so I, I, all I was left with was like the fun performances from, you say, Susan Hart. I think she's really good in this film too. Um, yeah. Especially like there's bits in this film I really enjoy, like when she's actually being a robot. The stuff at the beginning where she's walking around and the guy shoots her and they just give up because they can't understand why the six bullets are not killing her and they give themselves over to the police. That's funny. The milk pouring out of her from those bullet holes. That's funny. There's bits where this film works and then there's bits where this film doesn't work. And that's usually where Frankie Avalon's on screen for me. Well, there's such a specific vibe to that 1960s camp period, which we would see one year later, you know, in the Batman TV show, most famously, perhaps. And the Beach Party movies have that just across the board in that they don't really have stories, as you were saying. It's more like a premise. And then how many gags can we wedge into this? And sometimes that approach can age really well. You can throw on a movie like Naked Gun and it really does hold up. Whereas sometimes it feels very grounded in its era in a way that feels almost incomprehensible to you know a future generation. I think that's one of the things with the Beach Party movies. They're fun to watch if you can meet them on their wavelength. But it's also like, it's almost impossible, I think, to sit down like a 15-year-old now and be like, let's watch Beach Party. I think they would be just completely baffled as to what they're watching. 
I was going to say part of the part of the problem with those is the morality that they try to put in. Mm. So, again, I think they were trying to balance, like, how can we make a film that kind of upholds our current societal values, but also seems a little transgressive to get those kids into the drive in to see it. So the parts of it that are really difficult is when. Like Annette Funicello is trying to be this kind of like, you can't treat me like, you know, my mom's generation. But the level at which they're doing that is so awkward and bad that it's just sometimes difficult to watch. Um, I mean, I think the best thing about those movies is the music and the dance sometimes. There's that woman who does the, like, I don't know what it is, the twist. She wears fringe and she, like, can shake forever and never stop. And I find that it's just like, how can you do that? It's amazing. Um, and then there's the one, I think it was Muscle Beach Party is the one that's really wacky and fun. But it has like all the bodybuilders on the beach as like the, one of the big numbers. Now we're talking. Yeah. <laughs> that one features uh, Luciana Paluzzi. Yes. Who would show up in Thunderball. Yes. As, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's Fiona Volpe. Yeah. Well, I, I, like I say. This film has some really good fundamentals. The building blocks are there. And I think my problem was I went into it expecting more. Because as you guys know, we have a list of hundreds and hundreds of spy films we have to get through. I say have to get through. It sounds like it's a chore. I love spy movies. It's what I do. (laughs) All right, sometimes it's a chore. Uh, I'm looking at you, Remo Williams. But I went into this expecting more. Because this is one of those ones that falls into the, the conversation when you're talking about spy spoofs. And they say Flint's, and they say Matt Helm, and they say Dr. Goldfoot. They're kind of the 60s ones that come after Bond in the sort of spoof realm. And so I was expecting it to be on par with a Flint film. And it's just not. Oh, no. no. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. It, and that's where I went wrong, I think. Well, and I think the issue is it's not really a spy spoof. Like, if you no. really think about it, there really isn't, except for the fact that they call themselves sick, the, what is it, the secret intelligence... Command, I think. Common command companies. But it's really not about spies at all. It really is kind of like, it is the beach blanket movies being kind of having a layer of some sort of intrigue, not even really spy or espionage, but it's like... You know, the robots aren't trying to take over the world in the same way that one of the Bond villains was. They just want to have a lot of, you know, Dr. Goldfoot wants to get a lot of money out of these guys. And it's not, you know, really dealing with politics or international intrigue or anything like that. So I think, like, if you go into it expecting, oh, I'm going to see this spy spoof, then you're going to be scratching your head going like, What's the biker guy in the torture chamber doing there? And what, who, you know, like, why is Annette Funicello there? And, you know. That still um, confused me until I did my research. I had no idea who those people were. <laughs> when they're breaking the fourth wall there? Yeah. <laughs> I, it, I thought I was in, like, Rocky Horror Picture Show when they opened the freezer and there's a biker chained up inside. I was expecting, like, you know, um, what's that chap's name in Rocky Eddie? Horror? Eddie. Oh, Ma- Meatloaf. Yeah, meatloaf, thank yeah. you, Eddie. Yeah, Meatloaf. meatloaf. I'm just kind of riding out. But, um, and I should add, uh, Annette Funicello, the reason she's in those stocks and it's just her head was because yeah. she was pregnant at the time as well. <laughs> oh. That doesn't look good in a bikini, generally. It depends what you're into, I suppose. <laughs> um, but let's, let's talk about things that we liked, because that's what we like to do here first. Start with the good, end on some bad. So, Beth, you've mentioned a couple of things already, but what's something you really liked about Dr. Goldfoot? Okay, so aside from the uh, opening and closing 
music. Uh, I mean, I do. So there's this thing about bad movies. Like the thing that makes a movie unwatchable for me is not that it's bad, but that it's bland. And so the thing that I find charming about something like this is the fact that when they bump into the computers, you can tell that it's a piece of cardboard and it's shaking like that. Um, so there, there's a certain appeal for me to the production design that goes into it to make that, you know, compute the, the lab where they're creating these robots and what kind of ridiculous things are they going to create? You know, we've got the torture chair, which is, you know, a chair in a tiny closet and they, you know, animate some some electricity on it. So there's a certain appeal of that do-it-yourself mentality of these films that I just enjoy. Like, and how do you repurpose the pit and the pendulum? How do you write the script <laughs> to make sure that you can use the old Vincent Price portraits and put them in the hallway for Dr. Goldfoot? Um, so there's that aspect of it that I enjoy. And there's to me, as somebody who loves movies, it's fun to watch it and pick out those things and go like, oh, yeah, that's the portrait from, I think, Tomb of Legia. And that's, you know, the the set from Pit and the Pendulum. And so I find that entertaining on a certain level. And so that aspect of it. And, you know, I got to say the bikinis are great in this, <laughs> you know, uh, they they definitely played on the title well to deliver on the girls, the robots in their bikinis. Well, that's this is probably a good place to to mention the bikinis and and the girls, I suppose, um, and also their influence on spy cinema potentially in yes. the future. Because uh, a lot of people, and we've learnt this, Cam and I, through doing these films, and the Flints particularly were a good example of this. We thought that the Austin Powers films really were just riffing off of the Bonds. But they're really not. Mm. There's bits of that. Yeah. But there's a lot of Flint. And there's mm -hmm. apparently quite a bit of Dr. Goldfoot. For sure. Yes. This is the fembot. Yes. Think about it. If you're making Austin Powers, if you go to a film like this that most people probably haven't seen, people are less likely to get your connection. You don't have to hide it. But... You know, it's not going to be like the first time somebody watches Austin Powers, they go like, oh, my God, that's obviously Dr. Goldfoot. Um, most people saw Austin Powers and said, oh, wow, they're riffing on Bond. So, you know, to me, it's like, yeah, if you're going to steal from something, yeah, maybe go for something a little more obscure to, to get some of your ideas and, and fuel some of that comedy. And also some of the concepts felt original to people who are seeing Austin <laughs> Powers like, oh, my God, what a yeah. wacky, crazy concept. Whereas <laughs> it's like, well... <laughs> In the 60s, this was normal. But <laughs> what I really love about this movie is something you just talked about. I want to just kind of jump off of where you are, which is like just the creation of this world on a shoestring budget. Because like I've seen a lot of very expensive movies and TV shows the last, you know, five, ten years that are shot in hallways, office rooms, things like that. Like they feel very uncreative and a lot of just like, okay, this is very visually flat. This is a movie that really didn't have that much money. And yet, it's like every frame they're trying to inject something. Even like the office building, you know, where uh, Sick operates out of. Yeah. I mean, this. what's the budget on that office? It's not much. But they're finding ways to make it look crammed and kind of weird. And every time it shows up, it's very visually memorable. You look at the like opening where you have that like 
fast motion shot going down the winding uh, Lombard Street in San Francisco and a lot of travelogue shots of San Francisco. They all look beautiful. And then they recycle a lot of that stuff in the chase at the end. It's like ways to save money, but it re looks really beautiful. You know, and so that's the sort of thing that nowadays I, I watch a lot of films and I'm like, this looks you know, comparatively quite cheap in comparison to when I watch even a low-budget movie in the 1960s. Well, it's it's interesting because you actually went to San Francisco a few years back without me, Cam. I was supposed to come on that holiday, but I think you've been on that street. I ran up it, yes. Uh, how was it? Um, I mean, it was like as presented in the movie. It hasn't changed that much. Um, when they were doing some of the travelogue shots, other things have changed, you know, a bit. Some of the trolley cars look a little different now, but... Uh, it's great seeing Lombard Street. It's a very beautiful uh, location to visit if you are in the neighborhood. But just to go off your point, Cam, I think it, it's it's a success, absolutely. And yeah, you look at like the the dungeon and the lair of Doctor Goldfoot and his like his estate. Yeah, um, I forget what it's called in the film, but just like the the bikini machine itself. Let's be honest, it's cardboard with some uh, aluminium foil over the top. <laughs> uh, that's all it is, but it looks good. And yeah, you know, they've got the whole like dolly wheeling the girls out. It just looks like it looks like a world. It, okay, it it doesn't look like it was done on today's budget, but people go back and watch Batman from the sixties. They go back and watch Star Trek from the sixties, and they just love the story. They don't really get fussed about the set. And I think this film actually has a good set, but it doesn't have a good story, not at all. But I, it, it's nice to see a little bit of production value, even if they are really on that shoestring budget. And you look now at how they are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to evoke those cardboard sets on things. Like, you know, the new Star Trek show, Strange New Worlds, is trying to evoke that 1960s Enterprise, which was not, you know, a big, crazy, elaborate, expensive-looking set. So there's something about what they were able to achieve on these budgets back in the 1960s that I just find really impressive. And a movie like this, it can wear out its welcome, you know, because it's kind of set to the frantic setting. A lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At a certain point, you go, okay, this is getting a little tiring. But I never get bored of watching just the visual imagination as the movie goes through. It's doing its best to keep me engaged just by giving you, you know, good art direction and set direction. And to be fair, I, I, I do also want to pose a question because I've seen this in quite a few 60s spy films. Um, Beth, you, you said you were around in the 60s, so I'm going to put this question to you. Yes, I was. Did every, did every household have a revolving bar? Absolutely not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the liquidator. It's in this. I really wish people I... had like bars that came out of the floor or like revolved revolving walls. That seems to be a thing as well. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think what it was is that's what people wanted. Like that's what was presented to you as like, oh, this is really cool. This is something that you could actually do in your house. And so it was it was the. You know, I mean, that's what Hollywood is always good at is giving you, you know, showing you stuff that you may not have, but that you want. And I mean, I remember that stuff in a lot of movies also. And it was always I mean, that was meant to define like that, that kind of bar thing that was meant to define like the swinging bachelor pad. It was like, oh, yeah, you had the, the cool thing that you could either spin the, the round bed or you've got the the bar that turned around or you had, you know, some sort of lighting that you could manage to arrange. And you saw a lot of that on TV shows, especially, you know, like TV comedies and stuff where that would be the thing to have. But no, I never had one in our, in our house. I don't know anybody who had one. So I don't know if this is intentional because it's putting a lot of credit to the writers of this film. 
But it's actually mm. quite fun to look at the contrast of the lifestyle of Frankie Avalon's Craig Gamble, who has a fold-out <laughs> bed in the cupboard, and then the lifestyle of Todd Armstrong, by, played by Dwayne Hickman, who has a, a fold-out bar. Yeah, that's a, a big money difference there. But um, I did want to ask a question while we're talking about revolving walls. <laughs> it seems to be that people use them to hide something. Something they're ashamed like you, you don't want a bar to be on display, so you revolve it around. It has a nice painting, so you look fancy. What's on the other side of your revolving wall? What are you trying to hide? Beth? Oh, just a few bodies. Oh, okay. We went dark. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, in a perfect world, my comic book collection, because it takes up too much space. Okay. So Cam's gone geeky. Beth is, yeah. is uh, admitting to several felonies. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't I, put I, a number on it. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll stick to several. Uh, we'll leave it there. The, the authorities can do the rest. Um, I, I think I'll, I'll put a collection of, uh, of Bond memorabilia behind the wall. So like only once I, I've like started dating someone and they're like, okay, they don't mind it so much. I turn it around. They're like, okay, I can deal with this. But otherwise, it's just like a nice painting. Oh, wait, but right. see, you guys are picking things that are labeled like guilty pleasures, which I don't think exist because you should never be guilty about anything true, that true, true, true. you enjoy. It's so... all space for me. It's all storage. That's what... <laughs> I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> so, I mean, if, there, if, if, if there's bodies back there, it's only because I have a pet monster that needs to be fed on a regular basis. <laughs> oh, so it's like a logistical darkness. Like you're actually feeding a body. You're, you're like, um, what's yeah. it? It's like Audrey 2. You've got a uh, yeah got the, uh, the yes. killer plant back I there. I would keep. I or would like definitely have sure. I would have a yeah. I would definitely have something like that behind my revolving door. Speaking of rancor, uh, before I get to my like, there's a moment in the film where a guy chases one of the uh, fembots around, and he looks just like the rancor guy who cries when the rancor dies in episode six. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that guy. He's too. wearing like a vest. And he's got a bald head, and I was like, that can't be the same Aww. guy, but. Uh, Hey, I'm I'm bald and I have several vests, so I, we're part of a club. My like, uh, which we've brushed upon because really we've, we've touched on most of the likes I've had, but I want to just dial back into Vincent Price for a second. Yeah. You talk about people like Bill Shatner and he chews the scenery. I'm pretty sure Vincent Price has digested the scenery and spat it back out because this guy is, I mean, he is constantly winking at the camera and it's, it might grate some people watching this film, but I am completely on board. Whenever he's on screen, he is magnetic. And he is, like, milking those opera glasses. I mean, talk about, like, just a one-joke moment, and he's like, I've got to do it twice? Okay, I'm going to deliver that twice incredibly well. This guy was committed. The fact that he showed up on that TV special, which is pretty appalling to watch i mean he would just be there and he believes in you know these characters when he's actually being you know filmed and he's a lot of fun i know they replaced pretty much the entire cast or they kind of boot everyone for the sequel except for him but kind of that's all you need you know yeah. like vincent price is what brings you in and what's kind of makes the performance even more enjoyable is that it's not just dr goldfoot being frustrated with Igor and how incompetent he is. On a certain level, we can take it as this is Vincent Price kind of being frustrated with the low budgetness of the film he's actually in. So, I mean, I don't think he personally behaved that way because I think he's a very sweet gentleman from all that I've heard. So I doubt that he was like on the set complaining. But I think 
you can read it in that meta sort of way of like, oh, this is kind of him going like, look at these cheap cardboard sets here, Igor. <laughs> and all these like teenage, you know, heartthrob actors of just like, how old am I? Like, if I'm Vincent Price, if I may, if I'm my age now and I'm on all these sets, I'd be like, I feel really old right now. Like, I'm seeing youth culture all around me. Okay, <laughs> sure, I'll just play along. And he really does play along. Uh, but I think the thing about Vincent Price is that the youth cu culture also embraced him. Like mm -hmm. young audiences, no matter how old he got, always seemed to appreciate Vincent Price. Well, he's he's relevant even in the eighties. He's on the Thriller yep. album. Like he he yep. never went away. On the Muppet Show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a shot that stuck with me when it came to to Vincent Price. I think it's when they made number fourteen. Okay. Oh. The most recent Fembot, not the jokey one, yeah, which is a bit weird. The the, the remake afterwards, and he he like he, I think Igor ushers her off, and then Vincent Price kind of like gives her the eye, looks at the camera, then sort of shakes it off and walks away, and it's like uh, it's like winking at the the camera, but not too hard. And you know everyone else was looking at her too. So it's like a, this tongue in cheek moment that kind of works because this film has lost all coherency at this point. So you might as well have fun. <laughs> My favorite two Vincent Price moments in the movie. The first one, the um, the robot that's been programmed with like music culture, and then it just breaks into a dance scene, and his complete like annoyance as this dance scene is taking place. I love that. And at the very end, when you know Frankie Avalon and um, Dwayne Hickman are on the plane, and the uncle's there with the robot, and then Vincent Price and Igor like open the cabin door, and they're just like giggling. That moment really sold me as well. I thought that was so funny. Did that just feel very like wacky racist to you? With Dastardly and Muttley just kind of like laughing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. A little totally. bit, yeah. Um let's pivot over to some dislikes that we haven't mentioned. There's, we've already had a couple of gripes with this film. Uh, before we just like get into negatives, there's one thing I wanted to just ask everyone because we've talked about Vincent Price. Was there any other performance that you really liked? Like one that jumped out as fun to you because I want to just credit anyone in the positive section before we move into negatives. For me, the two stars apart from Vincent Price are Susan Hart as Diane. She doesn't get a lot to do, but yeah, well, she's drifting through several accents and languages in this film. She does a good job of that and making it fun. That intro is fun because of her. Um, and I would say Jack Mullaney's Igor is a good sort of foil to uh, Doctor Goldfoot in the sense of like he's the butt of every joke. Uh, it it wears on you a little bit towards the end of the prison sequences, but at the start where he like messes things up and he'll like overstep the mark and get swatted down, that's just kind of fun to watch the dynamic between two of them. Yeah, I would say that Susan Hart is fun to watch in this, and uh, and Igor at the beginning, but the, for me, it's mainly Vincent Price that holds it, <laughs> holds it all together. <laughs> I, I had Susan Hart as well. And honestly, I actually like Dwayne Hickman. I thought like his character is a total rube who's constantly being conned. But I thought like he sold it so well with just those bug eyes he would bring on every scene he had with, uh, you know, Susan Hart. It genuinely made me laugh some of his reaction shots. So I would say like in terms of comic energy, I thought he really worked. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the SpyHearts Patreon, 
home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The Avengers commentary is live, and we are going to a galaxy far, far away to take on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Now this is podcasting. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Okay, we're being very nice about this film. We have to give it some critiques because that's what we're here to do. I'm going to start us off because it's something we brushed past earlier. I think Beth mentioned it and I want to talk about it a little bit more. The spy stuff in this film is really sort of crowbarred into it. Like It, it really doesn't have any place. The, the joke's funny. The sick stuff is funny. The double O and a quarter, double O and a half is funny. But it's like they just added, it's like they've written the script and then just added in some spy jokes. We've had films on this podcast before that were very on the verge of not being spy films. I would say this is more spy film than they were, but only barely. Yeah, um, I mean, it feels like it's more of a 60s pastiche. And they were like, well, spy films are really popular because, you know, Dr. No launches in 62. This would have probably been in production around the time of Goldfinger's release, I would have to think. Um, So it's like, okay let's throw that in there you've got the beach party stuff you've got teen culture you've got all these various elements throw in the spy stuff because like frankie avalon in this movie as you know agent double oh and a half he's just walking around being like quarter uh, yeah i know yeah quarter (laughs) he's just like popping into scenes being like hey i'm a secret agent i I work for sick and i'm like i don't really understand how this organization works it feels like they just kind of threw it in as a gag Uh, James Bond does exactly the same thing, let's be fair. He tells everyone who he is. That is a good point. But but he also his only his only involvement is really to try and find the girl that he was hot for. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's really no spy aspect to it whether or not he's an agent. Cuz all he wants to do is go rescue Diane because he thinks she's cute. Well, it's like, you know, with license to kill. Bond isn't really doing any spy stuff because he quits the secret service. It's a revenge uh, story because mm-hmm. of what happened to Felix and uh, Della. Yeah. Which it, it works because you're invested in the character of James Bond. But if you started with License to Kill, you would think, well, this isn't a spy story. What what are we doing here? Uh, and this film does the same thing. Yeah. It, well, it's like it feels more like once you have him and, um, you know, the Tom uh, Todd Armstrong character trying to like solve things. It feels just like two crazy kids investigating, you know, the weird old man in the in the you know old building. Like that's kind of what it feels like, more than like anything to do with secret agents. It's a Scooby Doo story. Yeah, yeah, sort totally. Of, yeah. I mean, I wonder if they had a script lying around that had to do with like a mad scientist creating robots to steal money, and then the Bond movie was popular, and suddenly somebody goes like, "Oh, well, if we add an element of James Bond." Maybe we'll make more money. But they still had the other script. And so they're like, oh, all right, we'll just add those scenes with, uh, what's his name, Fred Clark. Well, they were clearly <laughs> called, successful because we're talking about it now. <laughs> the dastardly men. How dare they? Um, Beth, what about you? A dislike you have you haven't brought up yet? I think the thing that made me most frustrated was the endlessly long chase at the end. I just felt like it 
completely lost all the pacing. Not that it had great pacing up until then, but like I was game for it all the way until the chase. And then it was just like, what? Like, how long does this take? And the gags aren't that funny. And it just, and you know, the way a film ends can sometimes determine how you feel about it just because that's your last thing you're exiting with. So I just felt like, ooh, if you could have cut that down to like a couple minutes, my opinion would have been a lot better. It also repeats gags because you have yeah. the moment where Vincent Price causes their car to just explode. And that's kind of a funny shot. It's the sort of thing you'd see in like a Hot Shots movie or like a Looney Tunes cartoon or something. And then they repeat it again. And you're like, oh, okay, now we're just recycling material in a chase that's going on too long. Like, was there was no rule back then. This movie couldn't have been, you know, 80 minutes. I, I don't know why yeah. they felt the need to protract it because it would just cost more and more money the longer you stretch it out. And it does the Monty Python thing of like subverting your expectations in a sense. If you think of like the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where the police turn up and say everyone's being far too silly and shut the production down, <laughs> which as a side, it's because they ran out of money. That's not that was not the original ending of the film, but it works. But in this film, there's a there's a there's a military boat off to the side who decides to just destroy Doctor Goldfoot, but it doesn't actually destroy him. <laughs> <laughs> for no reason whatsoever, apart from the fact they probably had the license for the footage from the Godzilla film, they thought, hey, that's a way to get out of this situation. Well, you also just like think about this. From the point of view of this boat, it's like a motorist that has gone over a hill <laughs> off, a, off a cliff, basically, up. and crashed on the beach. <laughs> and their response is to open fire. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. Um, for my negative, honestly, I did not like Igor. Igor drove me crazy in this movie in that I didn't really understand what the joke was. It's supposed to be this reanimated character, but there's no real element of reanimation going on. It's just kind of, you know, John Mulaney, um, I don't know, just being kind of dumb through the movie. And I think it's really tough because Vincent Price is this just old pro. You know, the guy can show up, you know... Uh, do even like a shoot for a couple days and be incredible because he just can channel that screen presence and you pair him off with this actor and it's really tough because Vincent Price is just killing it every time and this other actor is just not up to the uh, up to the boxing match of being in the same ring as Vincent Price and then there's like a moment I want to see you know what you two have to uh, say about this there's a little subplot where Igor is posing as Inspector Abernathy Showing up at the uh, sick headquarters? Why? No idea. <laughs> I just guessed so Jack uh, Mullaney could get into a Sherlock Holmes costume that they had laying around in the costume department? Yeah? I, I don't know. There's that whole scene with, um, you know, the inspector and the uncle. And I'm like, okay, like the uncle has some kind of funny pratfalls along the way like I, I don't mind the uncle character but like what was the comic reason for the scene with Abernathy I don't understand it I'm going to challenge you here Cam okay do it I know the reason I know the reason why you do not <laughs> like Igor okay what is it it's because you can sense that is the relationship that you and I have and I'm clearly Vincent <laughs> oh. Price in this and you just see yourself in Igor and it's just like seeing you on the big screen it's hurting your ego and and that's why you have this problem because I do boss you around and I do call you an idiot frequently. I have locked myself in many a prison cells. That's true. Yes. 
So be careful, or I'll put you on the old <laughs> pendulum again. <laughs> but I, I, I get what you're saying. I just found him to be funnier than anything that Frankie Avalon was doing in this film. I disagree. I think Frankie Avalon has some good physical comedy when he's doing like some of the Pratt falls and stuff. I mean, I don't know how much is him versus a stunt double, but some of those moments actually landed for me. But as a performance, yeah, Frankie Avalon is. I've never watched uh, walked out of a Frankie Avalon film being like one of the great actors, one of the greats. <laughs> My only experience with Frankie Avalon was in Greece, I think. Oh yeah, he does. does. Doesn't he do like Beauty School Dropout or something like that? Yeah, he does. Yeah. Um. I'm trying to think of what like younger listeners of this podcast would know him from. That's probably the best thing yeah, because it's probably. like beach party movies. You had the movie Back to the Beach in the 80s, which was fun, but I don't think anyone remembers. He's also referenced by name in the System of a Down song, Old School Hollywood. So I guess there's that. Well, that's a reference that one person got. Thanks for that, Cam. You're welcome. <laughs> Jesus. Um, what I'm here for. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we had a dislike. I suppose we'll throw it out now to any final notes we have on the film. Beth, did you have anything for us? Well, I mean, I think this is a film you need to see if you're going to watch Austin Powers. Mm. I think it's it's something that you need to kind of appreciate to appreciate how that spoof got pulled off. And I think it's just like... It's worth seeing to put it in that context. I mean, I, I'm always about like trying to connect films together and putting things into like a bigger picture. And I think it's fun to see like where those connections come up. And if you don't see a film like this, you appreciate Austin Powers in a different way, I think. So I would recommend giving it a watch. Maybe check out Before the Chase. Yeah. Or fast forward through the chase. And then get to the end of the, you know, silly cockpit scene. Well, that's what we're here for. We, we watch the films so people don't have to sometimes. And we, we take <laughs> those bullets, those gold foot sized bullets. Yes. Um, no, I, I completely get that. And, you know, I, I'm glad we have saved doing the Austin Powers films. We haven't done them yet because, well, just because we hadn't got round to them. But it, it's actually helped us in a sense because we've done the flints and now we, we're doing these. And I think it's going to really inform our reviews when we do get down to the Austin Powers films. Because I saw them in theatres as a kid, but I'd seen some Bond films. So that's where I just got the connection in my head, but I'd never seen any of these other films. We've also done The Liquidator as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of those films. We should probably watch The Matt Helms, honestly, before we do Austin Powers. Yeah, that's probably a good point. Um, I think in terms of other notes, I had two. One was, did I hear a reference to Nob Hill? Um, in the movie? Yeah. Is that a place in San Francisco? Does anyone know that at all? It's not ringing a bell. Because I seem to recall when we were talking about a very old film, Cam, I think it was The House on 92nd Street or something like that, you referenced a film called Something Something on Knob Hill, and I, I spent five minutes making jokes about it. That's right. You are correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Frankie Avalon, when he has Susan Hart's Diane in his apartment, and she's talking about how Spartan it is, he goes, well, it's not Knob Hill. Oh yeah, well, not yes, that would be like a rich aristocratic area. I mean, it's meant to reference the the um, economic difference, as far as I remember. Oh, as in he's referring to them as knobs because they have money. Ah, uh, maybe mm, I don't know, but I do know mm. that Knob Hill has always been a reference to like a snootier or richer part of town. I didn't remember it being specifically in San Francisco, but I have heard that phrase well there you go cam so there's some uh, very strange connective tissue here 
I'm glad I could never forget Nob Hill. <laughs> one of the many outdated references in this movie that no one uh, would understand now. <laughs> no, quite. Um, the other thing I had was, and we mentioned it, but like the in-jokes in this film. Yeah. Films try a lot these days to not have in-jokes because they want them to sort of be timeless. It's, it's when you make current references, it will date your film. Was that something people were trying to avoid in the 60s or was it more just about... Oh, no. That it, uh, they were all about referencing themselves. Yeah, like, are you talking about, like, the beach party actor cameos? Yeah, the the two, the, the guy in the freezer and the lady in the stocks. Like, I think there's a couple more, actually, in this film. Yeah, yeah, there's a few. Uh, but I, they all went over my head. Yeah, I think it was more like they know their audience and they know their audiences watch those movies. It's kind of like when you watch, you know, a Marvel movie and, you know, Falcon comes out in, like, you know, Ant-Man, for example, they know the audience is jumping over from that series into Ant-Man. I can't argue with that logic. It makes complete sense. But uh, I just kind of wish I got the joke. But hey, I hadn't watched these films, but I suppose you two had. So it works for you guys. Yeah, I mean, those those things played for me. But I mean, nowadays, I mean, sometimes I watch some of those DC films and I mean, I see a lot of these movies and sometimes the the inside jokes or the Easter eggs and all that just completely go by me. I'm like, I don't know who those characters are. I don't know why that guy was in one scene and I, and everybody oohed and odd in the theater except for me. <laughs> I, I had that reaction at the end of uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness when uh, that lady turns up and pulls them into a portal. I'm like, who the hell is this person and why do I care? I mean, uh, I still don't know. In the 80s, they used to do things like that all the time, though, even where you had like... Um... In Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday Night Fever, where it's like um, John Travolta is walking down the street strutting and he bumps into Sylvester Stallone and they give each other the, hey, oh, kind of like look. Um, things like that just used to happen where actors would acknowledge each other. Even in, in Maverick, I remember Mel Gibson running into Danny Glover and the two of them do double takes when they see each other. So, you know. There's also a moment in Hot Shots Part Deux where Martin Sheen mm-hmm. and Michael, is it Martin Sheen and Charlie Sheen? Yeah. Like, was it I Loved You in Wall Street? Wall Street. Street. Yeah. 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 Um, which I've never seen. I assume are they both in? Yep. Okay. Now the reference makes sense to me, but it took me 20 years to understand it. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> well done, everyone. Um, Cam, do you have any notes for us? Uh, just a couple quick ones. The moment where Frankie Avalon is posing as the corpse and then, like, starts screaming at the guy and the guy freaks out, that reminded me a lot of a similar moment in Octopussy. So um, perhaps the filmmakers <laughs> uh-huh. were looking to Dr. Goldfoot for inspiration. Also, we have <laughs> I a... I don't think so. Oh. <laughs> I don't think so, Cam. I'd like to think so, Scott. In my world, John, let me have John this. Glenn's like, Dr. Goldfoot, I have to type, I have to write this down. Uh, Cam, I've got his email. I'll find out for you. Is that... Is that... No, see, but that was all the research they were doing before the That's lawsuit. Right. right. They yeah. watched it carefully. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing I had was we have a a brief performance by Sam and the Ape Men here, which is basically a band of people dressed like Fred Flintstone. I think we need to have more bands nowadays dressed like famous cartoon characters. I think you want that now? Yeah. So what cartoon are you proposing that we dress up as? I mean, you referenced Scooby-Doo earlier. Maybe we just dress up like the Scooby Gang and start our own band. I'm I'm down. I'm down. Uh, Who are you dressing up as then? I once did Fred for a costume. We did a group costume and I was Fred, so I'll just replicate that. I've always said you look like Fred. Yeah. Thank you. That was, that's exactly who I thought of immediately, not the dog. Raggy? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, go- I'm going as Velma. Okay, fair enough. I've already got the skirt. I'm, I'm good to go. Perfect. I'm good to go. 
Uh, what well, Beth, you're involved now. I, I've taken Velma though. So who who are you taking in the Scooby Gang? I I I I would identify with Scooby. Brilliant. We, we've got. Roar, roar. There we go. There we go. Or, or I could also be Scrappy if I'm feeling particularly rambunctious. <laughs> I don't identify with Scrappy, uh, but no. I do identify with Scooby. Just saying. many don't, many don't. People don't like Scrappy, do I? Don't understand that. Mm, yeah. Mm. Well, we're trailing off of Goldfoot here, so let's bring it home. Doctor Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine—is it making the knock list? That is the question that we must answer now. Cam, as we have a guest, please tell Beth what the knock list is. Yes, the knock list is our tortured acronym for Need to See Official Classics. So every week, we, after talking about a movie, decide if it belongs on the list of the all-time great spy films. And we try to make it a diverse list, so it's not just picking Spy Who Came In From The Cold and North By Northwest, you know, films like that. We try to include um, things like um, Our Man Flint made the list because of its, you know, cultural impact and just how... Yay! Yeah, how, how focused it is as sort of this lighthearted take on Bond material. So we like to bounce all over the place, but um, that sort of sums up what the knock list is. So everyone gets one vote. So I'll throw to you first, Beth. Yay or nay, is it making the knock list? I would say nay, mainly because there is not enough spy content. Yeah. Yeah. We've struggled with this problem before. Uh, Men in Black was one of them. There's also one recently we struggled with, Cam. Do you remember? Yeah, I can't remember what it was, but yeah, there was something. Hmm. I'm very happy that Flint made it, though. Yeah, well, I, I, I had to fight movies. for Flint, funnily enough. Cam was, Cam was against it. Uh, it was, <gasps> How it was dare us, you? It was me and our guest, Alan Porter, that week who, who fought for it because of its cultural impact on the Austin Powers films, funnily enough. And it, in terms of, like, spy spoofs, it's probably the best of the 60s. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. James Coburn was just so good. He's also fantastic, isn't he? Yeah. I think for me... I think I would have said yes now if we were reviewing it, but at the time I was just kind of unfamiliar with a lot of the 60s spy spoofs. And I've come to realize like now after watching several of them, like how well the first Flint was doing it in comparison to the ones that came after. So what you're trying to say there, Cam, is you watched Goldfoot and realized how good <laughs> how good Flint was. I, I, I read you loud and clear there, buddy. Well, you know, I watched The Liquidator. I watched Casino Royale 67, mm. you know, I revisited that one. And it's kind of like... That needs to... to go in a time capsule. Yeah. The Casino Royale 67. Like, if you want to understand the 60s, mm. that kind of sums it up. That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> Everyone was flying around on roulette wheels in the 60s. It was just a mad, <laughs> yeah. mad time. So it's like, I think if I were to tackle Flint now, I would have automatically said yes, because I think it represents, like, the best I've seen in terms of those spy spoofs. This one, to jump over to my knock list vote, it's fun. I think it's something that, like, if you're a spy fan, you might just like to check out in a lazy afternoon or evening, but this is not one of the all-time greats. It's more interesting just for me personally as something that, you know, kind of a product of that American international period. If you watch the Beach Party movies, it's kind of fun to see Beach Party does light, light spy spoof. Um, plus, it's always just fun to see, like, robot people you know, I was wondering at certain points, like, did this help, like, inform something like the Star Trek episode I Mud, you know, which has all the robot women, you know, that kind of trend of that period. So it's fun for that. But is it a great film? No. So that's two no's. And as such, my vote is pointless, as I am in real life, too. <laughs> so here is my thoughts anyway. 
it's a no for me. I don't think it, that's a surprise listening to the last hour and 20 minutes or so of this podcast. But what I will say in the film's defense is you're not going to get many outrageous performances like Vincent Price's in the spy genre, looking at our hundreds and hundreds of films that we have tackled and will be tackling down the road. So this is kind of a fun anomaly. I think this film is probably best tackled in a group setting. I think watching it by yourself on the couch is not the way to watch this. It almost needs to be watched at a drive-in with friends or like at a watch party where you can all make jokes about it, something like that, you know, Mystery Science Theater, that sort of thing. Or or a Zoom party, like Beth watched it. That's a perfect sort of environment to sort of all make your jokes about it and have a fun time maybe drinking some wine uh, and, and getting through it because that would probably help with that 25-minute chase sequence at the end through the streets of San Francisco. I was wishing those bombs were landing on me. Well, that's how, like, a lot of the wacky Disney live-action movies of the 60s, during the pandemic, my sister and I would watch those, you know, and just text back and forth on Skype and kind of ridicule the movies as we were watching them and, you know, take those in. And, you know, some of them are good, some of them are bad, but, like, they all have just crazy moments that are fun to kind of correspond back and forth about online sometimes. So I think Dr. Goldfoot would fall really well into that kind of category. It's not the sort of thing you can sit down and just be like, "Mm, I'm sitting down for a night of entertainment here. Yes, some uh, high cinema with uh, Dr. Goldfoot. No. No, but there you go, folks. That's three no's, and as such, Dr. Goldfoot in the bikini machine is not making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Now, that brings me to you, Beth. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us today about Dr. Goldfoot. You cracked out your bikini again to talk about this film. Um, But let's talk about your show. So, I mean, you've had a few spy episodes. I saw you had a little show on Slow Horses, the TV show, quite recently. Yes. Um, But, you know, what have you got coming up on Cinema Junkie? Well, I'm on a season break right now, but I will be coming back. Uh, One of the shows coming up is going to be with uh, Nora Fiore, who is the nitrate diva. And we are going to look at some uh, film noir women roles through the lens of horror. Like, is uh, are some of those Joan Crawford films, is she really the monster in those movies? And how does that play out? And... uh, uh, Nitrate Diva is always fun to speak with. And then a friend of mine has written a book. Uh, Matt Rotman wrote Bonkers Ass Cinema. So we're going to be talking about his book and looking to some crazy kind of uh, low budget action films, uh, things like that. So I haven't mapped out the whole season yet, but uh, I just love talking about films. So uh, I'll be taking some deep dives into some various genres and films coming up. Well, excellent. And uh, we'll have links to your show in the show notes below. And of course, well, thank you. you'll be all over our social media this week when we put this episode out. Oh, sorry. The one thing I did forget, too, is that uh, what I've started to do is to pair uh, what I call geeky gourmet videos with my podcast. And so I come up with some sort of themed food or drink that matches what we're talking about. So, you know, for Bond, I went to a bar and had a bartender discuss all the drinks that appear in Bond movies and what exactly they are and why they work or don't work as an actual cocktail. And, uh, you know, I've also made chocolate blood to go with a stuntman episode. So, you know, if you want to do your own stunts at home, you can have nice edible chocolate blood to 
play out your scenes. So uh, yeah, I do these little geeky gourmet videos. So I assume for Dr. Goldfoot, you'll be having a cheese sandwich in a cafeteria. <laughs> and milk pouring out all over. Of course, of course. <laughs> I don't know. Is... I think for for this, you know, I might make some little marzipan genie shoes that are gold, you know, that you could eat. Mm. Yeah, with some edible gold on it. Perfect. Yeah, that might that be nice. That sounds nicer than the cheese sandwich. Yes. <laughs> but <laughs> um, no, but we will leave links in, in the show notes below to your show. And Beth, again, I want to thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. And I don't know if you've covered these two films yet, but um, having talked about Dr. Goldfoot, I would love to hear what you guys have to say about OSS 117 and the Assassination Bureau. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. They are not. We haven't covered them yet, but they're definitely on our list to cover. I'm, I'm looking forward to tackling OSS uh, Song Descent. Is that, is that is off the top of my head? Yeah. I think that's it. Um I've watched them before, at least the first two. I haven't watched the third one yet because um, that, that came out during COVID, I think. Uh, it was delayed. Yeah, I, and I think, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, they're, a, they're an absolute riot. So if you haven't actually watched those listeners yet, go check them out in the meantime before we get to them. They're really fun to watch. Yeah. They kind of do right what Goldfoot didn't. <laughs> yes. It, it, took, it, it took them 30 odd years to try and figure yeah. out the formula. 40 years, if, if not. Uh, yeah. But um, no, g- good films. And in French, but they still they still work. Yes, they yeah. do. Um, but Beth, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, Cam, we can finally slip off our gold shoes and gold bikinis because we have wrapped on the first Goldfoot film. But the question is now, what are we talking about next week? We're going back in time, baby. We're hopping in that 60s time machine and we're going back to 1952 to hang out with Gary Cooper in the Civil War spy adventure Springfield Rifle. This is one of those weird ones. I, I spoke about this on, on his social media recently, and I've been looking forward to tackling it because it's a Civil War Western spy film. There's just so many descriptors you would not put together. It is a full-blown Western, and it's Gary Cooper right around the time of High Noon. Right. That means nothing to me, but it probably does to some people listening. So... Yeah, it's definitely going to be one to check out. I'm reliably informed it's quite easy to find online as well if you want to track it down. So, uh, yeah, check it out with us. So, of course, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Springfield Rifle and join us next week. If you like what you heard on the podcast this week, please consider giving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It just helps us spread the Spy Hearts love a little bit more. And speaking of love, do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, you make my heart go flippity-flippity. He never introduced himself by name, and, and then he excused himself, and there I was. I was now communicating with somebody from the KGB. He exposed more than 1,600 Soviet bloc intelligence officers, and his information led to the breaking of some of the most serious KGB and Polish intelligence spy rings in the West. Just two short excerpts from the Cold War Conversations podcast. Go check us out wherever you listen to your podcasts.